Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to 2023. You know, it's odd and, and a little bit sad that the media Democrat complex uh, has a bit of swagger over the red wave turned red trickle. So now when we had this uh, three votes on Tuesday on whether we got Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, somehow the liberal journalists were just squealing with delight. Um, you could see their enjoyment uh, on the front of the papers on Wednesday morning. All the ideological labels broke out. From the Washington Post, hard right holdouts push balloting to second day. Then there's McPaper, USA Today. Hardliners leave McCarthy out in cold in a series of votes. And today's winner, big capital letters at the top of the New York Times, Far right blocks path of McCarthy to House Speaker. Far right in all caps. Yeah, they're not subtle in the front page trolling. Subhead, a squabbling GOP sabotages itself. Yes, they call this a news analysis, which is a silly term for badly disguised front page editorial. From Times congressional reporter Carl Hulse, he is one serious Democrat hack. For old timers, he's like today's Hayes Gorey or Lawrence Barrett from the old time magazine. Yes, yeah, so this is how the this is the first two paragraphs. I mean, just get a load of how much old Carl is enjoying the scenario. Dateline, Washington. House Republicans began their new majority rule on Tuesday with a chaotic and historic debacle. An embarrassing failure to rally around a leader that showcased the difficulties they will face in performing even the basics of governing and their lack of a unifying agenda. Paragraph 2. Handed narrow control of the House by voters in November, Republicans squandered the opening hours of the new Congress they could have used to dispel concerns about their capabilities. Instead, they feuded in a disorderly display over who among them should be speaker as the most extreme elements of the new majority repeatedly rejected Representative Kevin McCarthy of California. Yeah, they got all the action words in there. They're just loving it. Now, I'm not going to take a side on this. We have conservatives who want McCarthy elected. Let's get on with it. You know, the Jim Jordans and the Jim Comers are like, let's get organized and assemble. And obviously we have conservatives on the other side who are like, no, we like Chip Roy. We need to, you know, we have a list of demands and, and we want McCarthy to bow to them. Uh, the whole point here is obviously the liberal media's intention 
is always, well, let's try to find the maximum embarrassment for the Republican Party because that's what we're about. That and constantly describing them all as hard right. Yes, the New York Times on Twitter highlighted an article by saying, the Republicans who blocked Representative Kevin McCarthy of California from becoming speaker on Tuesday include some of the most hard right lawmakers in the House. Most of them denied the 2020 election result. Now, I would advise, always be careful when the New York Times or the Washington Post or your Democrat rag of choice starts trying to categorize who rejected the 2020 election result because they get really aggressive with this. There are people who say to this day, President Trump won. But they're going to include people who raised objections, who said it wasn't fair, it was rigged. You know, when Newt Gingrich would say to the lady from NPR who was very upset, Mary Louise, Ke- Mary Louise Kelly, where he basically said, no, Biden won under the rules and everybody cheated. <laughs> so he's saying we all acknowledge Biden's president, but it was hinky. But the New York Times or the Washington Post will classify you as an election denier if you suggest it was rigged. As we suggest, as everyone knows, it was certainly rigged by Twitter. You know, it was certainly rigged by the news media that constantly suggested this was the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. And now in 2022, they decided, oh, well, maybe not. We'll tell you on A20 that it's really not New York Times. This also happened on television. I caught this right at the top of the NBC Nightly News. Here's Lester Holt with the hard right business. Also tonight, chaos in the House for the first time in 100 years. The election for Speaker going to multiple rounds after a group of hard right Republicans denied Kevin McCarthy the votes he needed on the first ballot. So what happens now? Now, look, it's not wrong to suggest you're a hardliner if you refuse to accept Kevin McCarthy as speaker. It's, it's not wrong to suggest maybe that you are, maybe even you could say hard right. The whole problem with this is always that these people couldn't find a hard left anywhere. They can't find it in a Hugo Chavez, let alone a Bernie Sanders. There are no hard left Democrats. They can't find them at the New York Times. Certainly we can't find them from Lester Holt. Uh, State of the Union 2019. What did Lester Holt say on live TV? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected to the House from New York last November, just weeks after her 29th birthday. She's a progressive Democrat, a favorite target of conservatives, and already so well known, she can go by just her initials, AOC. Yes, when you're hard left, you're called a favorite target of conservatives. That's that's how they tell the audience she's a staunch lefty. Or in our case, she's a left-wing kook who says all kinds of bizarre junk. Uh, Later in 2019, back to Lester Holt, when radicals Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib were denied the right to travel to Israel. Oh, the outrage. Lester Holt reported, Israel today barred two U.S. congresswomen from entering that country. 
They're the first Muslim women elected to Congress. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, and then later in the story, the, the whole story here was apparently they wanted to blame Donald Trump for getting these women banned from traveling to Israel, not their anti-Semitic, anti-Israel screechiness. Uh, you know, the uh, so they were the labeling for these women was frequent Trump targets. So, you know, again, part of the media bias game, part of the news busting racket is to always try to underline, look at the words they use. And we can look at it and say, we know what you're up to. But a lot of people who are might be moderate or squishy or not particularly well informed might be uh, confused and think, well, there's a hard right. But AOC, she's just a hipster. Kevin Tober made this point. In watching last night's NBC Nightly News, not only the Lester Holt beginning, but then when they did the story on McCarthy at 7.08, Garrett Hake, Hack, pronounced Hake, was reporting on, quote, a small but stubborn faction of right-wing members voting against party leader Kevin McCarthy. All right, again, do we have a stubborn faction of left-wingers? Now, obviously, the Democrats right now look extremely disciplined by comparison. But let's just underline this for people. The news media, when reporters are Democrats and Democrats are reporters, they are part of the institutional machinery that discourages dissenters. They are the kind of people that when we actually had some divisions with a Joe Manchin or a Kirsten Cinema that those people were the outliers and they couldn't necessarily be, you know, what were they, hard centrists, extreme centrists or whatever that, you know, obviously they were landing to the right of where the Democrats were. But, you know, here again, why can't we use the word hardliners to define people who want to abolish the filibuster? That would seem to be a hardline move. But just always understand, the news media are interested in Republicans, you know, self-sabotage. Well, no, it's not necessarily self-sabotage. It's certainly media-enabled sabotage. You know, they, they enjoy it. They play it up. They underline it. They feed on it. Now, that's one reason Republicans could say, I don't like this mess over the vote for speaker. Couldn't we be more disciplined? Couldn't we be like the Democrats? The Democrats, you know, lined up Hakeem Jeffries as their minority leader. There was no, you know, no fratricide, no sabotage. It was neat as a pin. I just want to underline for you, the media are part of keeping the Democrats on brand, on message. They are not going to highlight any divisions. You know, it recalls for me, this is an old story. I recall George Stephanopoulos used to go on a show here in D.C., Jack Diamond in the Morning on Mix 107.3. Now, this was not a news station. This was a morning show playing the top 40. And one time, and I don't remember all the precise things now. It's just off the top of my head. But Stephanopoulos sort of laid out that there was a big Democrat squabble going on. And what was fascinating about that was, oh, that's funny. He's not saying this on ABC. He's actually saying it 
on one DC radio station not known for politics. Now, this is really, as I recall, was before Twitter was a big thing. Might have been before Twitter entirely. Certainly before Twitter was a big thing. So that, you know, people wouldn't make a big deal out of it, you know. But it's it kind of underlines the point, especially when you have people inside the media like Stephanopoulos, who came up in the Democratic Party messaging machine. And we know there's a lot of those. Chris Cuomo, et cetera. Back in the Maria Shriver days, you know, there's always a bunch of those. But, I mean, these people are trained to make sure that Democrat messaging proceeds perfectly. You know, I was listening to NPR in the car and Tamara Keith comes on in one of these top of the hour newscasts and just basically talks about how, oh, the Democrats will be sending this messaging about how Biden's bipartisan. You know, they're just there to underline the Democrat messaging with your tax dollars. How about that? So, okay, so it's 7.08 on the NBC Nightly News. It's the stubborn faction of right-wingers are ruining everything for McCarthy. 19 minutes later, same show at 727. Now, this is the part of the show where they're usually Lester Holt's like, and now a heartwarming story about a boy being reunited with his lost puppy or something like that. Last night, another Valentine to Nancy Pelosi. Do we really need another one? Here she was, Allie Vitale. Nancy's Pally. Yes, the way she said this was, the history-making first female speaker of the house, famous for her toughness and deep understanding of her caucus. Even amid clashes and disagreements, Pelosi paving the way for the next generation of strong female leaders. Yeah, now you're, now you're getting what I'm smoking here for you. We can say she's famous for her deep understanding of her caucus. In other words, she puts down dissenters, and we here in the media help her do that. There are clashes and disagreements, but they all take place off camera if we can help it. Vitaly continued, There are nearly five times as many women serving in the House as there were 35 years ago, in part due to Pelosi's recruitment and encouragement. And then, of course, you get female Democrats throughout this piece saying how wonderful Nancy is, how essential she is. Uh, I guess Kathleen Clark, who's one of the new leaders in the House, was in there. Uh, There are many more women in the House today now. Your fun fact of the day, there are now in the new Congress 129 female members of the House. Okay? Uh, There are 95 Democrats and 34 Republicans. This was one of those untold stories they didn't want to do in 2020. Just how they almost doubled the number of female Republicans. Um, And a a lot of them were were Asian-American or Native American. I mean, there was all kinds of firsts. But since they were Republican women, you know, Ali Vitale wasn't going to run around and tell you. All right, so there's 129 female members of the House. That does not count uh, the the six non-voting delegates like uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton in D.C. Four of the six non-voting delegates are women. 
In fact, we have female Republican delegates from Puerto Rico and American Samoa. You don't hear much about them because they don't get to vote. Now, sticking with NBC, but changing subjects, from the department too mild to be biased? Sometimes you hear news on the, on the TV and you're like, well, that's not outrageous. We can't use that. We are all about the outrageous. They said something outrageous or even something mildly outrageous by finding far right and no far left. Well, look, sometimes they want to just present Democratic campaigns or abortion lobbying points as just mere news briefs. So listen to this brief update in the 7.30 hour of Wednesdays today. Well, let's get to your headlines. 7.30 on a Wednesday morning, the FDA has finalized a rule change yesterday that broadens availability of abortion pills. Now major chains like CVS or Walgreens, as well as online pharmacies, will be allowed to offer the drug Mifepristone. Under the new rules, women can get a prescription from a certified health care provider and then receive the pills through the mail in states where it is permitted by law. So they take a pill that chemically induces the death of a baby and they pretend there's nothing debatable or controversial or even political about it. There's no two sides. And then it's just the FDA decided something. It's not even the Biden administration or Biden's appointees to the FDA. And all they're doing is, quote unquote, expanding access to abortion. And in this brief, there's like it's a, like 25 seconds. That Savannah's talking. And about 15 seconds of that, they're showing the box. Mifeprex. You know, write it down on a pad for when you need to kill your baby. It, it just kind of amazes me that they would think that abortion is this uncontroversial. And let's face it, this is becoming the more popular mode of abortion because women want to have their abortions at home if they can. They don't have to face any protesters anywhere. And they don't, you know, they don't have to go see a doctor. They just take some pills and wait for them to take effect. This is becoming the way to go. But, you know, with the media today, killing a baby is like, hey, it's just what you want to do. It's, it's like, you know, buying a new pair of sandals. I mean, misgendering someone is somehow more heinous than chemically expelling a dead baby. Oh, you said Bruce Jenner. Like that's genocide or something. It's it's just crazy. I mean, let's face it. Savannah Guthrie, a while back, treated teenaged pro-life protester Nicholas Sandman like a human rights abuser compared to this. But women killing those womb demons, well, they're just beneficiaries of expanded access due to the scientists at the FDA. Alex Christie reported on this this morning. There was a longer thing here on CNN this morning with one of their experts, Dr. Tara Narula. Almost looks like Tarantula. Once again, in their segment, there's no mention of the Democrats. There's no mention of the left or of abortion lobbyists, Planned Parenthood delight. No, it's just, and now, medicine with Dr. Tara. 
Yeah, so this is basically meant to medically induce an abortion. And as you said, this is probably going to expand access to many, many women, making it much easier if they want to be able to get these pills by going to potentially their local pharmacy. And so historically, in order to get access, a woman had to go in person to a doctor's office, hospital or clinic and get that drug right there. Um, over the course of the pandemic, that was changed a little bit. So a woman could have a telehealth visit and have it sent to them by a mail order from a certified pharmacy. But now the FDA is saying you don't have to go in person, number one. And number two, you could potentially go to any of these brick and mortar pharmacies who fill out essentially paperwork to make themselves certified. So mm. it remains to be seen how many of the big chains like CVS or Walgreens are going to, to do this. Um, will we see this in the beginning in just smaller pharmacies? But what we may see as well is more doctors being willing to prescribe these drugs because they don't need to stock the drugs in their office. So it's definitely going to become easier for a lot of women. Now, uh, leading into this, anchor Poppy Harlow said, this is not like the morning after pill. That's what they call it. Or they call it emergency contraception. For those who've had, quote unquote, unprotected sex. Uh, the uh, So she explains, obviously this pill is about expelling a uh, a baby. The morning after pill is about... Well, let's sweep the egg out of there before it becomes a baby. So the, Poppy explains this. Dr. Narula goes on this little tear about how, uh, how it's going to become easier for a lot of women to do what? To kill the babies. And then Don Lemon comes in and says, I saw an ad for the morning after pill. And, you know, Poppy Harlow's looking at him like, yeah, I just said that, doofus. She didn't say that, but that was a look on her face. Uh, uh, you know, look, it's become very important for Biden's FDA and Democrats in general to try now very hard to distinguish between the so-called morning after pill and the chemical abortion, because they would say, well, the, the, the morning after pill, that's not an abortion. Well, it can be called an abortifacient, but they want to somehow say since pro-lifers you know, for example, might advocate to not have emergency contraception located in public school nurses' offices or something. In some states, they've done that. They've tried to make that an issue. So they're trying very hard to distinguish between the morning after pill and the chemical abortion. Uh, for example, story in the Wall Street Journal a while back, headline, the morning after pill gets a Gen Z rebrand, they explain. As health companies step up marketing for morning after pills, they are ushering in bright packaging and TikTok videos. Quote, we want it to be fun and shareable. We want your emergency abortion to be shareable. One of these drugs now is simply named Julie. Isn't that convenient? So now you can speak in code. I had a visit from Julie last night, and now I'm feeling better. <laughs> All right, wrapping up here today. 60 Minutes. What was 60 Minutes thinking? Who paid off 60 Minutes to put on 90-year-old Paul Ehrlich to uncork all of his usual garbage about how the earth is going to hell in a handbasket. 
January 1, 2023, we get 90-year-old Paul Ehrlich. The guy who's been wrong since he came out with the book The Population Bomb in 1968. 1968. The book began with the battle to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s, the world will undergo famines. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Fact check. Blazing forest of pants on fire. And he's been wrong like this for year after year after year. I remember these books. This is an Ehrlich, an Ehrlich book, but it had the Ehrlich spirit. One was titled Famine 1975. And then 1975 came and went. World hunger was a bigger issue in the 1970s, certainly, than it is today. But see, Paul Ehrlich runs around and nothing ever changes. There is no scientific fact that could emerge that would move this guy two inches from absolute panic and fiasco and disaster. Scott Pelley let off the show with Ehrlich warning, I and the vast majority of my colleagues think we've had it, that the next few decades will be the, the end of the kind of civilization we're used to. This is the guy that literally is sort of strapping himself with two sandwich boards saying the end is near. And he's been marching around like an idiot with the end is near, being wrong in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, the 10s. And now we're in the 20s and he's still wrong. And you just have to ask yourself, why do you, any of you people who claim to be concerned about misinformation... This guy is like the crown prince of crap. And they just have this arrogance that one of Ehrlich's colleagues comes on with Pelly and says, I don't think you'll find a scientist that will say we're not in an extinction crisis. But you know, scientist Michael Schellenberger, who has, uh, you know, sort of become now uh, outside the left-wing bubble, because he's been done one of the threads on the Twitter files. He took to Substack and reported, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the main scientific body that tracks species, says just 6% of species are critically endangered, 9% are endangered, and 12% are vulnerable to becoming endangered. But the IUCN has estimated just 0.8% of the plant, animal, and insect species within its data set have gone extinct since 1500. 0.8% that's now being cast by CBS and Ehrlich as an extinction crisis. And just what drives me nuts about this is, you know, very early on in my first year at the MRC with our monthly Media Watch newsletter, we were fussing at the idea that NBC not just put this guy on, Paul Ehrlich, for an interview. They made him the correspondent. And now Paul Ehrlich reports. And he did these cockeyed, nutty reports, just like you're hearing here. And he did some in 1990. And then he did it again in 1990. Or he did it in 89, and then he did it again in 1990. This is my favorite. This is the one I never forget. Because, of course, we live here in the D.C. area. 
we've spent some time going back and forth over the Potomac River. And so in 1990, 32 years ago, who's fact-checking this guy? Ehrlich will be facing a sea level rise, not of 1 to 3 feet in a century, but of 10 to 20 feet in a much shorter time. The Supreme Court would be flooded. You could tie your boat to the Washington Monument. Storm surges would make the Capitol unusable. And then he signed off. For today, Paul Ehrlich in Washington, D.C., on the future shoreline of Chesapeake Bay. Now, has that happened? Has anybody seen the Chesapeake Bay expand to, to flood half of Washington, D.C.? Where the capital's unusable? Where you can tie your boat to the Washington Monument? This is where you say, not only did CBS never, at, you know, never put anybody on that would take exception to this and point out it was bizarrely wrong. You know, they put on a segment where he's the, he and his pals are the only experts. These are the people who are lecturing us about democracy. This is the way they are, though, when it comes to the climate. There's no two sides. We have one side that says there's a climate crisis, an extinction crisis. They make all sorts of wild claims. They've got their skirt over their head for 30 years, and they're always wrong, and they never get a rebuttal. Now, way back then in 1990, I read a book in my college years called The Ultimate Resource. The author was an economist named Dr. Julian Simon. Julian Simon made a bet with Cuckoo Paul Ehrlich in 1990. He said, you pick, your pick, pick five natural resources and we'll track the prices over the next 10 years. If we're going to have some sort of crisis of scarcity, the price of these is going to go way up. If the prices stay the same or go down, I win. And I think they bet $1,000. Ehrlich chose these, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And guess what? Julian Simon was right on all five. Ehrlich was all wrong as usual. Do you think that Scott Pelley mentioned this? Of course he didn't. When NBC was putting Ehrlich on, Simon was never contacted. We talked to him back then. He's no longer with us. But he said, how many times does a prophet have to be wrong before he stops being a prophet? And the answer is, when you're on the so-called right side of history, you apparently never have to be on the right side of scientific fact. Just like you never have to be on the right side of scientific fact if your issue is, I want to be uh, Caitlyn Jenner, and so on. Science is malleable on certain political causes. Abortion. Uh, that's not a baby. That's merely a, an 11-week thing with an electrical pulse somewhere in there in that thing you call a head. All right, so if you want to track what we're covering with politics and science and pseudoscience, you got to come to Newsbusters. Come once, twice, 24 times a day in 2023. Thanks for listening.